0: From Luminary and Built-It Productions, it's wisdom from the top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, behavior researcher BJ Fogg.
1: I think the people that do the best, they don't just do it by sheer willpower, sheer discipline. They've created systems that help them be consistent and that help them perform even at moments of weak or low motivation.
0: BJ Fogg on developing small habits that create big change.
2: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Generative AI is not a one size fits all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Habits are part of our daily life.
0: So much so that we don't always realize we're doing them brushing our teeth, making the bed, putting dishes in the dishwasher. But what if you want to make or create a new habit? Maybe you want to start exercising or eating better or getting up earlier. Well, as you probably know, making those changes can be hard. And if you've ever tried to start a new habit and failed, well, you're not alone. I mean, look at New Year's resolutions. Only about half the people who make resolutions keep them. And most people who fail, fail really fast, like by February. A lot of times, we don't keep our new habits or resolutions because they're too big, or we can't figure out how to fit them into our lives. But BJ Fogg knows what it takes to make habits stick. That's because he's the head of Stanford's Behavior Design Lab, and he spent the past 20 years researching what causes and what changes certain behaviors. BJ says the key is designing tiny, manageable habits into our lives. And he's devised a system, the Tiny Habits Method, to help people do just that. And it works. B.J.'s method has helped Weight Watchers revamp their program, he's also coached tens of thousands of people online for free. And he shares this approach in his book, Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. B.J. was raised in The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and says it had a big impact on his life and his research. The church encouraged him to behave purposefully this included finding creative ways to make and keep good habits.
1: Growing up in Fresno as a Mormon, my parents were very, very faithful and still are very faithful Mormons. And we did everything the church leaders asked us to do. And that would range from daily practices uh, like family scripture study early in the morning and family prayer in the morning and eating dinners together to ongoing projects like having a year supply of food for emergencies and and on and on and on
0: i i read something that that you you had mentioned it was an early memory as a child i think is really interesting because it it i think it it ties to something that in a sense you would write about and and become well known for later on in life which i think i would call a prompt maybe and it was this idea that you had a rock under your pillow, so at night you would would remind you to pray because you would hit your head on the pillow and you'd feel the rock and it would but it was a reminder to pray and and that that idea it might sound weird to some people, but it's a it's it's like an alarm bell or a notification or it's it's a rock. it, it actually there's something really simple and elegant to that idea,
1: yeah, yeah, you know, and it may not be actually a rock that young people use, but even today, if you want to read twice a day uh, going to bed and waking up you could put a book on your pillow and as you go to bed that would remind you to read it's the prompt to read and you put it by your bedstand. and then when you uh, wake up there's the book to prompt you again to read mm. so much of our behavior is controlled by the prompts in our lives and that's uh, the rock, whether it's a rock or using a book or something else to signal you, that's a way of designing prompts into your life deliberately and not just leaving it to chance. You, you've used the word design, and we're going to get into this, because
0: design really – I think that, that concept of design really kind of led you on a journey to figuring out how to to design or, or how, to, how to change behavior or to develop behaviors. And that's really where you're kind of – um, uh, theories come from, right?
1: Yeah, that and social psychology. And, and so it's, it's my work is a blending of science and academics and taking what would be called design thinking now. Mm. And the design thinking goes back to the mid-90s when I was at Stanford as a graduate student. And I took a course from a guy named David Kelly. Head of IDEO at the time. Head of IDO which was, a, you know, a small but growing design firm and working with David Kelly and learning to think in some ways how he thinks. Um, and there was no design thinking at that time. The D school then would get founded by David Kelly and one of my classmates. So I certainly attribute that way of thinking to David Kelly and others in that circle at the time. Yeah, Yes, I was being trained to be an experimental psychologist, run true experiments, but at the same time, I was taking classes with David Kelly and HCI and human computer interaction, designing interfaces and interactions. And so for me, when you're looking at a problem like creating habits, um, you need to bring insights from scientific research, but it's also a design opportunity. So, how? How, how is it a design opportunity? The fact of the matter is, for most of the outcomes that we want in our life, we can sit down and design a plan to get there. And part of that plan will be designing habits into our lives so we can achieve what we want. Too often, people just leave it to chance. They have these abstract things like, oh, I really want to have more energy or I really want to feel better or I really want to write a novel. Uh Mm-hmm. But without designing some sort of plan or system, maybe they'll get there, but they probably won't. And it's not as hard as people think. There's a pretty straightforward process of taking whatever aspiration you have or outcome that you want. And those could be things like losing weight, having more energy, sleeping better, saving up for some purchase, completing a novel, etc. And then Being able to achieve that by having a systematic way of tackling that issue. Mm. Um, And often that includes habits, you know, doing things on a daily basis or a regular basis to help you achieve whatever aspiration you want. So it doesn't need to just be this abstract idea or this wish. You can systematically say, how do I get from this point where I am to that point where I want to be?
0: Yeah, I want, to, I want to understand how you kind of made the shift from – your focus as, a, as an academic researcher was on how computing and technology can create um, habits and behaviors even when we don't un- realize that. And you really shifted in focusing on human behavior. Um, t- tell me a little bit about, about that shift in your focus.
1: Yeah, in the mid-90s as part of my research at Stanford and as part of a research lab there, I started doing true experiments to see how computers could be designed to influence our attitudes and behaviors um, with the idea of we could use it to improve health and relationships and learning and, you know, in the earnest kind of Mormon way, like, of course we're going to use this for good. Mm. And as I was sharing the results from the research it was either kind of rejected, like "oh, your data must be wrong," or you know, computers can't do this, or it was ignored. Um, people like because at the time, guy, it was really about user friendliness and usability, and, hmm. and and I would give these presentations. I was at Xerox Park, and I said, "Here's what's going to happen," and it seemed like very few people cared. And then I published a book called Persuasive Technology that brought a lot of this together and said, hey, people, computers will be used to influence our attitudes and behaviors. There's good things about this. There's bad things about this. There's things we got to watch out for. And I spoke a lot about the ethics of it, um, the design challenges with creating machines <laughs> that would be designed to influence human behavior. And by about 2006 or seven, I just felt like, Man we've done what we've needed to do here, yeah, and we just want to he- keep helping people and just had done our thing with technology. And so, I think my own interests and my lab's interest uh, shifted, and we really got into human behavior in general and especially habits
0: so so walk me through through your labs the the behavior design lab's initial findings. wasn't it like? I think pretty soon after you decided to shift focus, that you had a kind of a breakthrough of sorts, right? That that sort of helped to lay the foundation for Tiny Habits.
1: Yeah, it was in as we were stepping away from technology and computers and persuasion, a, a, a riddle was solved for me, uh, like what comprises human behavior, and it turns out there's a pretty straightforward model for human behavior that I call the Fog Behavior Model now. Uh And the pieces came together for me in 2007. It goes like this. Behavior happens when, and behavior includes habits. Habits is a subset of behavior. Behavior happens when three things come together at the same moment. There's motivation to do the behavior. There's the ability to do the behavior. And there's a prompt. And when those three things come together at the same moment, the behavior, whether you want it or not, will happen. And once I mapped that out, and it was kind of one of these eureka moments, like, oh my gosh, here is this solution to this age-old problem of what, you know, what causes behavior. Yeah. And it was with that model, motivation, ability, prompt, that a couple years later, I started hacking my own habits. Um, So a habit would happen if I had motivation, ability, and a prompt. Now, I knew I couldn't necessarily reliably influence my own motivation so I really focused on the ability part of it how do I make the habit really really easy to do so so like so what did you
0: decide to do like what what do you mean by easy
1: well at the time I was trying to be very um, good with putting on sunscreen and so I thought okay I'm not gonna put on a full face of sunscreen just one drop Let's make it so easy, so tiny that ability wouldn't be a problem. Hmm. And so, yes, I was motivated to put on sunscreen. And the last thing was, what's going to prompt me? What's going to remind me? Mm. And it wasn't clear to me at the start. And then one day getting out of the shower and just going through the step by this after this, bam, aha. The way that you prompt a habit is you use an existing routine you already have in your life to remind you to do the new habit. So you don't put up a foot post it and you don't use an alarm. You use your existing routine to be a prompt. So for putting on sunscreen, it would be after I put away my razor from shaving, I'll put on a drop of sunscreen. For flossing, it would be after I brush, I will floss but I made it tiny I will floss one tooth so I started goofing around with my own habits and started creating these all these habits quickly and easily and, and it was oh my gosh this really works and and then it was in 2011 about 8 months later I started teaching it to other people when we come back in just a moment BJ
0: tells us how he went about turning this tiny aha moment into a research program that has helped a huge number of people change their habits. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top.
2: Cool Fact
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host.
2: Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill, and Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com/claude today.
0: Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. And I'm talking with B.J. Fogg, author of the book Tiny Habits. So when we left off, B.J. had taken his discovery to real people to help them create or change habits.
1: So by about 2014, I had probably coached 15,000 people in this method personally, doing it through email. And when the opportunity came to speak at a TEDx event, I was like, sure, let me do this. And yeah, I think that was the first time I gave a public talk on it other than my own website and um, Twitter and so on.
0: It's, it's, a t- it's a terrific TED talk and everybody should, should go check it out because it's, um, it's, it's, it's well worth watching. And there's a, a really, really simple idea that you introduce in the talk and it's um and it comes from from all this data you were collecting basically you were trying to figure out how do people develop new habit and um and you found that it was tiny steps small things and we'll get we'll get into into it in, in a moment but one of the things that you had people do if they wanted to was to just do just, it sounds so simple but <laughs> the idea was when you wake up in the morning and you sit up in bed and your feet at the floor you you should just say to yourself it's going to be a great day it's just as simple as that yes which which sounds like um you know something like a let you would read in a self help book but but there was a <laughs> but there was real there was real data that you started to gather around this simple idea of sitting up in bed and saying it's going to be a great day
1: what did you find out from people who were doing this well like a lot of things and a lot of research. Things start in your own personal life. My partner, we started saying it's going to be a great day. And then I started sharing it with the Habiteers. Habiteers are people who do tiny habits. Mm -hmm. And then I just got so much good feedback from it. Like, oh my gosh, BJ, it's just changed the trajectory of my morning. Our family life has gotten so much better and so on. So I really started suggesting to people to do this seven-word habit, say it's going to be a great day. And yeah, it's, it does feel a little woo-woo, it does feel a little, right. but it was powerful. And I didn't know exactly why it was powerful, but I was confident enough to suggest it and have hundreds and even thousands of people do it. And now when I look back, there's explanations of why it works. It's about intention setting, it's about framing, it's about... You know, when you say it's going to be a great day, then you look for ways, you work for ways to make it a great day and so on. So there's reasons at work, but like a lot of things, you stumble across these insights and then you explain them in retrospect.
0: I think what's interesting about this idea is it actually is a small thing that you then discover through your research that can
1: lead to other small or even bigger changes. Yeah, and one way to think about it is you're driving along, you reach a fork in the road. I can go this way or that way. That's a small thing. Am I gonna go left or am I gonna go right? But that very small thing is gonna, could have really big implications about what happens next or what happens an hour from now or what happens days from now. All right. So you um,
0: you released Tiny Habits, I believe, I think it came out last year in 2020. Um, and one of the first things that you talk about in in the introduction in the book is about how the, one of the reasons why so many of us cannot um, change our behaviors or create habits is because we judge ourselves, which is a normal, natural thing. We, we beat up on ourselves. We, you know, I, I wish I'd meditated every day. BJ, uh, I wish I did. I don't. I feel great every time I do, but I do. I do judge myself for not doing it all as much as I want to. This is just something we do as humans.
1: Yeah. And you know 10 years ago and certainly 20 years ago I would have been very surprised to think that I'm talking about self-talk and emotions and positivity but it turns out it's so important to acknowledge your successes however tiny. Mm. And when it comes to behavior change, the lapses or the things you don't achieve, just let those go. The the self-trash talk, the negativity, the seeing all your failures does not help you move forward in a positive way because it's emotions that reinforce the behavior, that make it become a habit. And what I've learned both through tiny habits and through other ways is These emotions, even the positivity you get first thing in the morning by saying it's going to be a great day, has these ripple effects and affects other parts of your life. Yeah. So what we're looking for in our lab research at Stanford is what are the techniques that are really easy to do and really simple but will have dramatic effects on people's lives?
0: So let's say someone says, I want to be more productive.
1: Is that the wrong way? Is that sort of the wrong? No, it's a great starting point. It's a great starting point, but it's just a starting point. So in my system, which I call behavior design, you always start with something like, I want to be more productive or I want to finish writing my book.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One is an aspiration. I want to be more productive or I want to sleep better. It's, you can't really measure it exactly, but it's a great starting point. You can also start with an outcome, uh, which is, I want to score this level on the GRE or I want to finish my book by the end of August. Either one is a good starting point, but you don't stop there. After you get clear on your aspiration, then you come up with a whole bunch of different ways, a whole bunch of different behaviors that might help you be more productive. And I might be wake up at five in the morning. Uh It might be get my inbox to zero every day. It might be meditate for 15 minutes. Come up with 20 or 30 different things you could do that would make you more productive. Mm -hmm. So there's a come up with a whole bunch of options. Then you go back and select among those. You don't do all 30. You pick among those many, many different behaviors which ones are going to be effective and which ones are you motivated to do And which ones are you able to do? So it's those three criteria, Hmm. effectiveness, motivation, and ability. And you only design for those that have those three characteristics. And I call those golden behaviors or golden habits. So you brainstorm and you pick among them. And then the ones that are effective and you want to do and you can do, then you take the next steps and you design those into your life.
0: BJ, what is it about motivation that we don't understand? Because we think that motivation means something very specific, but but you've argued and you found in, through your research that, that that the way we think about it is not is not right.
1: Yeah, it's quite surprising. I mean, let, let me describe a phenomenon that everybody knows: your motivation for something will go up and down over time. Your motivation to, um. Exercise may go up and it may go down and so on. Your motivation to eat organic food will go up and down. Your motivation to connect with relatives. Mm -hmm. So motivation is not a fixed thing. You're not always motivated to do everything all the time. But that concept of motivation being dynamic, going up and down, does not have a long academic tradition. And the earliest studies I can find that even mention that are fairly recent, they're like 2007, 2008. And that variability in motivation didn't have a name. So I, along with some colleagues, we named it, we called it the motivation wave. So my methods aren't so much about how do you boost your motivation and keep it high so you can do hard things. It's recognizing the reality of human nature is our motivation will fluctuate. We go through motivation waves. Hmm. And so, you design for your lowest points of motivation in tiny habits. And if you want to do more, if you want to floss all your teeth, if you want to put on a full face of sunscreen, if you want to do 20 push-ups, great, you can do that on day one. But you set the bar really, really low. So even on your worst days, you can floss one tooth, you can put on a drop of sunscreen, you can do two push-ups.
0: There are some people, we, we all know them, who just seem sort of um, wired. Um, in, in a different way, they, their levels of motivation just seem off the charts. The people who do the triathlons, or who have a, a very consistent pattern of of work, I wonder if it's possible if we assume that some people just maybe because of genetics or or upbringing or cultural habits are m- more inclined to be motivated than others. Is it possible to to to, to kind of Attain that level of motivation if you aren't, let's say, (laughs) genetically predisposed to it or culturally predisposed to it?
1: The short answer is yes. But, Guy, I want to push back a little bit here. Please. The perception that all these people have high levels of motivation, they can sustain it like miraculously or just somehow they have it, is probably overstated. I mean, certainly when you watch TV shows or you watch the Olympics, or you watch marathons, you're watching unusual people that in that domain have high levels of motivation. Other aspects of their life may be total disasters. And so the perception that people have like, oh, I'm unusually, I have low motivation, I don't have willpower and so on, I just wanna push back against that. The reality is everybody struggles with motivation, everybody struggles with willpower. Yes, some people, are more perhaps capable than others, but a lot of that comes down to having systems in place. So you having a CrossFit group, having a regular program, having a commitment. So I think the people that do the best at achieving these very difficult things, they don't just do it by sheer willpower, sheer discipline. They've created systems that help them be consistent and that help them perform even at moments of weak or low motivation.
0: You know, one of the things that you you emphasize in the book is the idea of celebrating success. So, so I mean, just to kind of um, distill it down into a very sim- simple example, if you were to say, I want to floss my teeth every, every single day, every single night, um, and the prompt is you're brushing your teeth already, so you've got that prompt, and you start by flossing one tooth, and then the next night maybe two, it's literally – kind of patting yourself on the back for doing that?
1: Yeah, yeah. And and with this example, on day one, you can floss all your teeth if you want. If you have enough motivation to floss all your teeth, knock yourself out, to all your teeth. It, it's Tiny Habits isn't, you know, one tooth, two teeth, five teeth, all my teeth, or two push-ups. It is, you set the bar really low. So even five years later, if you only want to floss one tooth, you do it. You look in the mirror and smile and you say, good for me. So that is the emotional component that will help wire in the habit. If you can help yourself feel successful as you do a new behavior, it's that emotion, it's that feeling that causes that behavior to become more automatic. Mm-hmm. For flossing, a really easy one is to look yourself in the mirror and smile. So you cause yourself to feel a positive emotion in that moment. That technique is called celebration in the tiny habits world. And there's at least a hundred different ways to celebrate. But to be really, really good at forming habits, you get really, really good at creating a positive emotion on demand because it's that emotion that reinforces the behavior. It's what causes it to become more automatic, or in other words, a habit. So there, there are
0: things that we, most of us, want to do and things that most of us think we should do because it's healthy or we're going to live longer or whatever it is. How do you how do you begin to kind of – when people say, look, I really want to change X or I really want to change Y. Like I would love to be more patient with my ch- – I love my children. I, I really work hard to be a, a great dad and – but sometimes you just lose it, you know? You're just like, get your shoes on. Um, but let's say somebody says, look, I want to be more patient. I just, I just want to be more patient, PJ. Um, where
1: – how would they start? Where would they begin? Yeah. Well, start – you know, that's a great aspiration. I'd further clarify that. I want to be more patient with my kids. And you could get even more specific. I want to be more patient when my kids are making me late for something right? Because that might be the crux of it right there. Uh, so get clear on the aspiration and then come up with a whole bunch of different ways you might do that. And then among those 20 or 30 options, you know, pick the the behavior that the response to being impatient that uh, you think will be effective and you want to do and you can do. So it's the same process And I'm a huge, huge advocate of going through a process to figure out what is the right habit for you in that situation. And don't just guess. Don't just say, oh, I've heard you should just sit there and count to 10, because that's a guess. So go through the process, find what seems to be a golden behavior for you or a set of golden behaviors, and maybe just do one or two. Mm. And recognize, this is really important guy for the the bigger impact. As you feel successful in a domain, whether it's being patient with your kids or eating healthy snacks or whatever, your identity starts to shift. I'm the kind of person who can be patient with my kids. That identity shift then affects other behaviors in your life. Wow. The feeling of success, even around tiny things, and I've seen this in my research since 2011, has a ripple effect and it causes people to do other behaviors that weren't specifically designed in the tiny habits way. And so it seems that that shift in identity comes from the feeling of success or the recognition of succeeding that then shifts how you think about yourself and that new identity then ripples out and shifts other behaviors in your
0: life. So the emotion... The, that emotional experience is what creates a habit.
1: Yeah, the, the feeling of success in a domain. Let me give a really quick example that happened to me. Uh, years ago, walked into a conference. Uh, the organizer was a little behind schedule. He had a bunch of flowers in his hands, and he handed them to me and said, hey, BJ, can you can you arrange the flowers and put them right here? And I was like, oh, okay. Never done this before. So I did it, arranged the flowers. And as Jerry was starting the event, he said, BJ Fogg, arranged the flowers. Didn't he do a great job? And I went home and started arranging flowers. I took one of my bathrooms and turned it into a floral studio. Fast forward, even today, I have three or four bouquets around the house. It was that one moment of feeling successful that changed me from, I don't know how to arrange flowers, to, oh my gosh, maybe I can arrange flowers. And that has become actually a key part of my daily life now.
0: When we come back in just a moment, keeping the good habits and unraveling the bad. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top.
2: Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill, and Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com/claude today.
0: Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So BJ Fogg's research shows that thoughtful design is key to making and keeping habits. But his research has to contend with popular ideas often wrong about how habits are formed. Like repetition is the key to making good habits. Or if you just do something for a certain amount of time, it'll stick. So I asked him to unpack these kinds of ideas, some that go way back to the 19th century. All right. So I want to go back to to William James, who was this hugely influential figure in psychology uh, in certainly in the U.S. I think people called him like the father of American psychology. Um, and, and he wrote a book, I think, in, around 1890, that talked a lot about habits um, and and in many ways, it still really influences how we think about habits, right? I, I'm I'm kind of oversimplifying, but I think he said that uh, if you want to start a new habit, you have to basically keep at it consistently and keep doing it. And then the flip side is of that is that if you don't do it consistently, the habit won't form. Is is that is that more or less a distillation of his, of James's ideas and how how we today, like our culture, have has traditionally thought about habits?
1: Well, part of it, yeah, you're right. It really laid the foundation for how at least Western culture would think about habits for at least a century and beyond. And as I look back in retrospect, he got so many things right. I mean, there wasn't the kind of science that we have now where you run experiments. They were more like philosophers. Mm. And, But he had so many great insights that I think are right. But he did kind of burden us. With this notion that you need to be perfect in behavior change. And he's not right on that account. You don't have to be perfect. There's twists and turns, just like a baby learning to walk. The baby will stumble and, but eventually get there. But he talks about, he talks about creating a habit like winding yarn or some string around the ball. And if you miss once, it's like dropping that ball of yarn and it will just become unraveled. Yeah. So he uses that metaphor as a way to help, I guess, emphasize the fact that you just never miss a day, never lapse. And I think that idea has become part of how people think about habits, unfortunately, because that really sets up this black and white thinking. You have to be perfect and has led, in my opinion, to people being very self-critical and a lot of self-blame and people feeling shame when they're not perfect, when they try to change the behavior. But nobody is perfect. And so it, it's really, on one hand, I look at William James as, wow, brilliant, so many insights. And on the other hand, it's like, wow, he really set us up to do a lot of self-trash talk and have unexpected, unreasonable expectations about how to change behavior.
0: What, where does this idea that that habits form if you
1: do something for a fixed time. Where does that come from? Um. <laughs> There's a few sources of that. The most recent source, the idea that repetition creates habits, comes from bloggers and books. And, and they cite a study that was published in 2009 by a researcher named Lolly the research wasn't established to show causality. So there's no evidence I can find in that study or any literature that repetition is what causes the habit to form. But people have cited that study and major book, very major book, uh, has perpetuated this myth and bloggers have perpetuated. And the problem with that guy is if people believe that repetition is the key to creating habits, then when they want to exercise have an exercise habit, they might go, oh my gosh, I have to do this for 66 days. Uh, I'm not ready. I can't do it. I don't have the bandwidth. So one, they delay or procrastinate change. That's a problem. Number two, as they get going, if they miss a day, they beat themselves up. Oh, all bets are off. I missed a day. i got to start over or something like that. That's not accurate. That's not helpful. It's really setting people back. And even if they do get 66 days of that behavior, it may not wire in as a habit. If it's unpleasant, if it makes you feel bad, if you don't want to do that behavior, those kinds of things rarely become habits. Yeah. One of the myths that's out there that really is damaging people is the notion that repetition creates habits and that you have to do something for 66 days or 30 days and so on. You're not designing for repetition. You're designing for a feeling of success as you do the behavior, because that is—it's the feeling of success. It's emotion that wires in the habit. Look at look at a baby starting to walk. When the baby takes the first steps, what do parents do? They don't wait sixty. Yeah, right. You celebrate it. <laughs> right. And so once you see the world, and once you see behavior—our behavior, baby behavior—then you see it's very, very clear. It's—it's it's our brain. Watching for an emotion, and it's that emotion that signals to the brain, oh, my gosh, you should repeat this again. You should floss your teeth again. You should do push-ups again. Oh, my gosh, you should be patient with your kids again because look how good you feel. Look how successful you are when this happens.
0: So most of the time when it comes to things like weight loss or fitness, people measure success by looking at the, themselves in the mirror, and, and that's not something you can see from one day to the next or even one week to the next, it can take a long time. And so the, the tiny habits principle makes a lot of sense. But how do you how do you get people to understand that they may not actually see results? They have to that, that it's, it's more of an internalized process. Yeah,
1: there are two overriding principles in behavior design in my work, and I talk about these in the book, Tiny Habits, and I call them maxims. Maxim number one is help people do what they already want to do and help people feel successful. Your question is about the second maxim. If somebody wants to lose weight, you can help them feel successful by redefining what success means on that journey. The industry has a term for this. It's called non-scale victories. So people may come to the program thinking the only thing that matters is on the scale. Mm. But a a really good program, a really good coach will redefine what success means on the journey. Oh, my gosh, I stuck to my breakfast game plan. Good for me. Oh, my gosh, I ate a healthy snack. Good for me. Oh, my gosh, I went out to dinner with my friends and I stuck to my game plan. Oh my gosh, I now have more energy. All of those things are markers of success that somebody's succeeding. And it often takes an expert or a program to help people redefine what success looks like. Sure. In the world of meditation, guy, this is a, this is a very big challenge because when people think, Oh, I want to meditate and they think of success of I have a perfectly calm mind and I'm going to be like a monk and that's really hard, as you know, as everybody knows. So one of the keys in the meditation space is to redefine what success looks like as you meditate. It's not going to be you have this perfectly still, placid mind like a Buddhist monk. It might simply be you sat down today and that is success.
0: You know, it's the thing that really strikes me about this and, and what you write about in your book is... It, it. It. I had a Kind of triggered a, a memory from my childhood where I, I played baseball and sp- and sports, and I remember. I remember those coaches who were really tough. The kinds of coaches who were shouting at us, "You guys suck," you know, and and I never ever responded well to that. It didn't make me better. It never made me better. But it does work for some people. So what explains that?
1: Yeah, it's a great example. When you watch the best coaches, the best coaches understand how to coach each player, and it's often different. Um, So some people just, just point out all the positives, all the times you succeed. Some people, it's kind of tough love, and people will get motivated by that. And there's a bunch of subtlety I probably don't understand in coaching, Um, But certainly different things work for different people. And this is why in my work in behavior design, there's not one habit or a set of habits or one thing everybody should do. Mm. It's a system that people apply to their own life. And so as they go through the system, they figure out, well, what is it that I want to achieve? What are the behavior options? Which ones are the right ones for me? And so in the entire book, Tiny Habits, there's one habit. I prescribe for everybody, and that's it's going to be a great day. And after that, I don't tell people what habits to form, because our lives are so different. But there's a system to help people create any habit that they want. And so follow the system, and you can achieve what you want.
0: I have to ask you about unhealthy habits, right? Because we, I think, and, and you talk about this in the book, which is we we, all, we often say, how do you get rid of bad habits, which you, you think is actually not the right question to, to be asking. Um, it's more about untangling habits uh, that are unhealthy
1: one at a time. Yeah, and even switching that word. Um, and and that, that, that goes back a few years where I just realized that break and breaking habits, it's like, that's not the process. It's not just a bunch of force in one moment, like breaking a stick and you're done. It is a process to get rid of these habits that people talk about when they say, I wanna break this habit of smoking or unhealthy snacking or being impatient. And so I looked for a better word And untangle seems to be the best word, and that's what I talk about. You untangle these unwanted habits, and that sets a different expectation Hmm. in a few ways. Break means it's sudden, and it's all about force in one moment. And we know that's not true. Untangle implies it's a process, and it helps acknowledge that. At the beginning, you may be totally perplexed, just like a phone cord that's all tangled up. You're like, oh my gosh, this is a mess. But you know that if you take the easiest tangle and get rid of that, and then go to the next easiest and get rid of that, you will get there. And that's the process I outline in Tiny Habits, is view these unwanted habits as not breaking them, but untangling them, map out what those tangles are, and then take the easiest one, not the hardest tangle, but the easiest one, let's say it's unhealthy snacking, is the bigger habit. And one of those tingles is um, during your lunch break, you pick up a candy bar in the vending machine. And you're like, sure, I can give that one up. So untangle that one and then go to the next one. And with time, just like the phone cord, it will come free and you'll be clear of that tangle. Ultimately,
0: you have become convinced through your research and this massive data set that you have that, basically anybody is capable of developing and, and keeping a new habit?
1: Yes. Yes, and we do it all the time, whether we know it or not. We are creating habits all the time. During the pandemic, oh my gosh, most of us created dozens of new habits and we stopped a whole bunch of habits, whether we did it deliberately or not. When your environment changes, your habits change. So everyone's capable of creating new habits kind of by accident, but more importantly, by design, you can design new habits into your life. I think what,
0: what resonates with me is this idea that you actually, for, for me, and, and you talk about this in the book, you, I change by feeling good about myself, not feeling bad about myself. And I think that applies to many people.
1: Yeah, it's, it is such an important idea that you change best by feeling good, not bad that I thread it through the book and it's a big part of my work and it might be the most important contribution from the book for the world, helping parents understand your kids change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. Your employees change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. You as an individual help yourself feel successful. You change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten... So many emails where just that idea has been a game changer in people's lives, how they treat themselves, how they deal with their family and their job situations. It's, I just feel so a combination of humbled and fortunate to be a vehicle to share that concept and get it out there and help people see that. If you're struggling with change, if you're beating yourself up, if you're feeling bad, that's a signal that you're approaching change in a less than optimal way. There's a way to change by feeling good, not by feeling bad.
0: That's B.J. Fogg, author of the book, Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. By the way, that research he was doing on persuasive technology, well, it ended up laying the groundwork for a whole field of study— called Captology, a name BJ coined. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built-It Productions.